fun while we read God's word? We have quite the lengthy readings today, all from the book of Genesis. Um, we will be reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, um, chapter 3, verse 20, and then 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, so if you have your Bibles, follow along. If not, it's definitely up on the screens. <clears throat> it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And then chapter 2, 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She be shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 3, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You, shall not, you sh will not surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was so desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is the word of God. Please stand me while I pray for the service. Lord God, you have made male and female, father and mother, in all of us. Lord, thank you for our very being. Thank you for breathing life into us. And thank you for your ultimate sacrifice to Christ to reunite us with you and bring us back into Eden from which we left. Lord, I ask that you give Kyle words and wisdom and that you open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Missy. You can leave those chocolates up here if you want. With me, no. I um, so the the reason we um took a look at um those varied texts in Genesis, we're in first of all we're in the the book of Genesis, kind of examining its contents. We're in a series um that we're calling "In the Beginning" and going through the the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And the reason I I examined some very various different sections of the text this morning is because some of, some of the portions of those texts ha have been seen throughout um, secular criticism um, of Scripture that these texts are actually degrading um, towards women. So I really wanted our women to feel special this morning, so I picked the, the passages of Scripture that some have said are degrading towards women. Um, but when, you, when we start to read them, you'll actually see that it's quite the opposite. And I hope that, that that comes out very clearly this morning. Um, Martin Luther was a, the great Protestant reformer. Yet many people don't know that actually um, Halloween um, is, actually the, is also Reformation Day. 
And that's the day that um, Protestants celebrate the Protestant Reformation. And that's when Martin Luther um, challenged uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church with respect to salvation by grace through faith. Not just those things, but also the authority of the Pope versus the authority of Scripture. Various things that are outlined in the 95 Theses. Um, he hung on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that created basically the Protestant movement, which is, which is basically the origins of the evangelical church in our country today. Um, so Martin Luther <clears throat> is, is an important figure in the history of the church. The great Protestant reformer, he was also kind of, of a bit of an eccentric guy. <clears throat> he, um, he's, he smoked and drank. <laughs> Not very Christian, right? But um, he, his reply to someone who kind of criticized him about that was, God gave me ten commandments, don't give me an eleventh. I have a hard enough time obeying the ten. <laughs> right? That was his response. Whether or not you agree or disagree with his views on alcohol and tobacco is another story. Nevertheless, Martin Luther said, the great Protestant reformer, that uh, drunk, he once quipped this, he said a, um, he compared humanity to a drunkard who, after falling off his horse on the right, gets back on, determined not to fall off again, falls off on the left. <laughs> and as is often the case in culture, philosophy, values, and ethics, our culture can often have some kind of extreme view on something, and then the next generation, the exact opposite view. They see that view as an evil and um, refuse to abide by it. So one generation can believe that men are property, and that's okay, and we can sell them, and we can have slaves, uh, and we can trade men like cattle, while the next generation sees any kind of law a slave, a slavery, a type of enslavement. One generation is quick to fight in battle, and war is virtuous, and in the next generation they fall off the other side of the horse and see, sees all war as criminal, Right? Now, if we stand outside our cultural moment, we all live in, you know, 2018, 2018 is it now? Yeah, there we go. Uh, we all live in 20, I was going to say 2016. Um, we all live in 2018. If we could try to, like, hover above our cultural moment, um, we, can, we can mark um, certain ways in which our society has progressed, certain virtues that are certainly a complement to our culture, things like... Um, Women can vote, and slavery is abolished, and there is no such thing anymore as Jim Crow laws. At least philosophically, we've advanced, and legally we've advanced. Not to say that our culture is perfect, even in those areas, but we've at least recognized the need for equal rights. We certainly can be thankful, right? We can applaud these certain social advances of our day. But have we fallen off the other side of the horse? You see, we corrected one evil, and we fall into another. Gender has become a choice. Sexuality is um, amoral, just, you know, um, there's very few limitations on our sexual, sexuality. Ma marriage is easily disposed of and redefined. Uh, and the unborn is a fetus and not a baby. You see, we have made many advances, right? We, we're not falling off the right side of the horse anymore, but now it seems as if we're falling off the left. Um, equal rights have somehow evolved into a sort of gender neutrality leaving our children to believe that they can decide what they want to be, no matter what that is, um, rather than accepting what they are by nature. So our culture sits in tension, doesn't it? On the one hand, we can applaud it for the liberties and the equalities it promotes. Yet on the other hand, we can critique it for its presumption of limitless choices. Right? In all this, the Bible... I think, provides to us a remarkable explanation of how and why God created women. Who they are, what they are, and why they're here. Oftentimes the Bible is critiqued as having a, an oppressive or regressive view on women. Now, this actually, believe it or not, providentially was um, a, a message in my sermon series on Genesis it's a little displaced. I was going to preach it later, but I thought, hey, it's Mother's Day. Mothers are women, so let's do it now. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. So like I said, the Bible at times by critics, um, is the, the Bible is critiqued as being regressive and oppressive towards women. 
And no doubt, some of that critique, I think, is valid if you're looking at certain behaviors of certain Christians that are defining the role of women based on not the Bible, but the 1950s, right? We, we tend to define women as Christians on, on a cultural moment in the 50s rather than in Scripture, and we think the, they're both the same, and they're not. So sometimes Christians don't do a good job at this, to be quite honest. So it's understandable why the culture would just presume that Christians generally teach something that's regressive towards women. But that's not so much what the scripture teaches at all. The Bible is actually liberating and quite empowering towards women. Um, sometimes Christians are ignorant of what scripture says and what it means. Sometimes, believe it or not, quote-unquote Christians are bad people. And they are twisting it to suit their own purposes and their selfish motivations. So sometimes people come in the name of Christ and they're actually a devil themselves, right? You know, it's also true, by the way, that other religions, other worldviews, and other cultures are oppressive and regressive towards women. Christi Christianity is not, or Christians, I should say, are not the only group that has been guilty of this throughout history. Now, what can we learn about the nature and worth of women from the earliest chapters of the Bible in Genesis. This is where, where we see a woman first introduced um, to the created order, to the creation. God in his handiwork decided to make man and woman in his image. What's the difference between men and women? Are they simply biological differences? Are they simply anatomical differences? Is the Bible actually degrading toward women? I would actually argue that the Bible is liberating and empowering, maybe not so much in the sense of how our world or our culture defines liberating and empowering. I don't mean liberating and empowering by suggesting that there is no such thing as, an, as a moral or immoral choice. There's a difference between that and being liberating and empowering. Just because the Bible makes laws doesn't mean that it's degrading our worth, right? Let's look at the story of Genesis and make, I want to make some observations about what the Bible teaches about women. This is actually kind of fun. I was a little excited to teach this message today. I hope that you enjoy hearing it. Now, like I said, some have seen these observations that I'm about to make as degrading, but we're going to see it's actually quite the opposite. And I hope that you see clearly why by the end of the sermon. The first point that we can reach from the text that we read from Scripture is this is very clear. It's kind of like a Captain Obvious observation. But God makes Adam first and Eve second. God makes Adam first and Eve second. Now on, on the surface that might seem kind of like some, there might be a degrading implication by that. Some have used this to suggest the superiority of the male gender, right? But there doesn't seem to be anything in the Genesis story to suggest that. It's just a matter of fact. Adam's created first, then Eve. So what's, what's the problem? What the problem is, is how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament interprets this order. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the one our culture trips over, and I'm about to, I'm about to fall on this grenade. So here we go. I do not p permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Ouch. Oh, my gosh. Said no woman ever. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see, so Paul is using the order of creation as an argument to establish male headship in the church. And the first thing that we got to note about this is just that. Paul, it's very important to recognize here, is talking about pastoral authority in the church. He's not talking about culture at large He's talking about the church, and hopefully we'll understand this more later. Paul here justifies the submission of women to both men in the church, or elders, pastors. By the way, the men members of the church are also submissive to the, to the, the pastoral authority in the church, but that's another story for another time. But Paul justifies this submission of women, and he uses the creation order. Adam was created first, then Eve, and that's why. Throughout Scripture, there are only two institutions that require male headship, and it's the church and the family. No other institution besides these two, um, the Bible um, demands male headship. 
It perhaps confuses us, I think, that the man occupies this role because he was created first. It seems a little arbitrary. Why can only men be pastors in Scripture? Well, they were created first. It seems like that's what a kid would say, right? Um, It seems a little bit arbitrary. It's actually not. It may be a conversation for another time, but the husbands and pastors are given this role of headship, of leader of the church and the home. So what's considered degrading here? Not that Adam was created first and Eve second. What's, cre- what's considered degrading is this little word that we all don't like, submission. We don't like that word submission. It's a very dirty word in our culture, isn't it? So even as Christians, you, you might just cringe a little bit hearing that word, that church members are told to submit to their pastoral authority. You see, we don't, Americans don't like that because that, it's because of the way that, that we define the word submit. And I think that's the primary problem. The only reason why it's degrading to us, this word, <clears throat> is because we don't know what submission means in the Bible. We only know how we define it in our culture. Does that make sense? It's, it's only de- degrading because of what it might mean to you. And it's only degrading if we misunderstand why God instructs some and not others to submit to an authority. Okay? Why does God tell us to submit? And what does submission mean? So let's look at this. Because if we're going to be angry at this word, let's be angry for the right reasons. What is submission in Scripture? Well, let's talk about what it's not. Submission is not bondage. Submission in Scripture is a sort of love and respect dance. So a leader is called, the head of the house is called to love his household, to lead it and to serve it, to equip it, right? That's the kind of leadership that fathers and husbands are called to exercise in their home. That's not bondage. That's not a dictator. That's not fetch my slippers, right? It's a person who's called to love, to serve, to provide for his family in a loving context. That's what Ephesians 5 is all about, The husband's commanded to love his wife and the wife to submit to or respect to her husband as a head of the home. So submission is not a bondage. It's not an oligarchy, right? It's not not a dictatorship. That's not what it is. Also, number two, submission is not one-sided. And what I mean by that is submission, if submission is not bondage, it doesn't mean that leadership in the home is one-sided. That is, in a healthy home, A husband and a wife are a team. They're going to make decisions together. The wife isn't just told, here's what we're doing, now deal with it, right? How many many husbands does that work for, right? And it shouldn't work for us because that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to lead with our wives, to respect them, to ask their opinion. So so leadership is not one-sided and submission is not one-sided. The third point that we need to make here is that submission is not absolute. And what I mean by that, respecting and following the decision of, of, author, of any authority has limitations. If a cop tells me to rob a bank, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to disobey him, right? Um, Peter announced in Acts that it's better to obey God than man, right? Did you remember this? Because they were telling Peter to not preach the gospel, The authority, the government was telling Peter, don't preach the gospel. And Peter said, I have a greater authority than you. And he tells me to preach the gospel. So submission, earthly submission, is not absolute. It is is dependent on the righteousness of the person being followed. Does that make sense? That means that we have a moral obligation to disobey to not submit to authority if they are commanding of us to do something that is wicked or sinful. Do you recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into a fiery furnace because they disobeyed the king? They would not follow his order to not pray to their God and to pray to his God. They said, no, we're not doing that because it is better to obey God than man. They disobeyed the law and they were thrown into prison. Now we have some cultural examples of this at the time. Um, with that faithful woman who sat in the front seat of the bus, you remember? Breaking the law because it was the right thing to do. So friends, submission is not bondage, it's not one-sided, and it's not absolute. And also, submission is not transferable. 
<clears throat> and what I mean by this is that there are many authorities and social structures that the Bible does not reserve for men only. Okay? So male headship does not transfer into other institutions like the police or like the fire or like business or government. You see, women um, are not told that they can't be leaders in these settings. <clears throat> so business and government, law enforcement, the, the military, the Bible does not govern um, who or what kind of person should be leading in these settings. In these settings, by the way, let's, let's add this to the equation. In these settings, the husbands of a wife who is in a position of authority has to submit to that authority even though she's his wife. See what I mean? So, for example, the husband of a female judge, right, has to submit to the laws of the judgments or the decrees that she enforces. A wife might have to discipline her husband in a workplace setting if she is the boss in that setting. And he must submit to this. Isn't that interesting? So, friends, submission is only an ugly word if by it we, meet a, we mean a sort of surrender, a giving up of all of our rights and freedom to the whims of some evil person. Okay? Every day, everywhere, we submit to authorities, don't we? We all have bosses. You know, if, when our children have parents. Every day, everywhere, we submit to authorities. So it's not an ugly word. It's a word that gives us and provides for us structure and authority and even more. In Scripture, submission has to do rather with the acceptance and reception. This is beautiful. The acceptance and reception of a loving service, a work that's provided by someone who is leading us. It's receiving a love. God is our head. God is our ultimate authority. And we respect him and we obey him and we follow him because he loves us. So that's what I said before, that in Scripture, love and respect is a sort of dance that two people enjoy together in healthy relationship. The husband is to provide that loving lead leadership in, in the home, and the wife is to respect and receive that leadership. Now, why, woman, why women? Why not man? Well, that's a good question. Certainly it is not because she's less intelligent. It's not because she's weaker emotionally or physically. It's not because she's less human than man. All of these statements that have been made have been made by foolish men when none of them are true at all. Women are not less intelligent. You know, you know people often, women are more emotional. I, I don't even know about that, you know? Um, less human, certainly not. It's foolish and erroneous to say that even, even if you could prove any of this, right, which I think is foolish, but even if you could prove any of this, it's foolish and erroneous to say that any of these qualities disqualify a person for leadership. You know that some men are more emotional than other men? Can they not lead? Some men are less intelligent than other men. Can they not lead? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm not the smartest guy in this room. I'm pretty sure that some of the members of this church might be smarter than me, as hard as that is to believe. Does, should I step down? Should I hand them the mic? Because they, they, their intelligence quotient is, of course not. God doesn't call us to lead because we're the smartest person in the room or the brightest light bulb, okay? So if this doesn't qualify men to lead, why would it disqualify women? It's foolish. And it's not even true, by the way. Many women are just as intelligent, if not more, emotionally strong and together than men. According to scripture and experience, women are equal in the following ways. They are, equally, they are equal spiritually, they are equal intellectually, they are equal emotionally, and they are equal individually. Now that doesn't mean we're the same, but it does mean we're equal. It doesn't mean <clears throat> that we're better. One is better than the other. It means that we're equal. All people, man or woman, has the potential to be just as smart, just as emotionally controlled and balanced as anyone else. Okay? All of these presumptions are based on a cultural shift, a cultural moment, a cultural virtue, beliefs that we've adapted. Now, equality does not mean that men and women 
are indistinguishable. It doesn't, because we're equal, doesn't mean we're the same. We are different. Because we're equal in worth and ability does not mean that God has not distinguished or reserved certain functions for man and for woman. But God, here's the point, God did not give Adam that leadership role in the home because he was smarter. He simply gave it to him by analogy. He created him first, and he was setting Adam up as the analogous father of creation. Because God was modeling human relationships, God was modeling human relationships after his own nature. And if you know this, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son and the Holy Spirit, they are equal to God, yet they submit to the Father's will. Now, I know that this is a whole other conversation, and it might be confusing. There is one God, three in persons, okay? One God, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all equally God. They are all equally powerful, equally intelligent, equally timeless, This is the the testimony of Scripture. Yet the Son submits to the Father's will. And if we're created in His image, that means that there are two equals, one leading and the other following, submitting to in that marriage relationship. Does that make sense? So that is the analogy. The the second thing that sometimes has been said um, is a degrading thing is that Eve is called Adam's helper. Eve is called Adam's helper. Did you notice this? Helper does not mean slave. Helper does not imply inferiority. Okay? And by the way, it's also not patronizing or condescending, like daddy's little helper. Right? You're not really good at much, and I know that. Why don't you help me? Hand me the hammer. Right? It's not a sort of kind description that betrays a feeling of superiority. Right? That's not what's going on here. And, and here's how I know this. Psalm chapter 30, verse 10, and Psalm chapter 54, verse 4, calls God our helper. We are certainly not better or stronger or smarter than God, are we? It certainly doesn't mean that God is our inferior. If anything, the task of helper in Scripture is reserved for the greater let's not go there, men. (laughs) So what does it mean that Eve is Adam's helper? Well, she wasn't created to fetch his slippers, right? Here's what it means. God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply. He could not do that by himself, last I checked. He needed something that he did not have. He was incomplete. He was insufficient, you see? Also, Adam commanded, God commanded Adam to keep and guard the garden. Eve was to help Adam with this. And her helping mirrors that of God's helping us. You remember God, God told Adam, go and name all the animals, fill the earth and subdue it. And he creates Eve to help him, right? If God has something that we lack and need, it's the same in this situation in the, the image of God created man and woman. Women have something we don't have as men. And, and men have something women don't have. We need each other because we are incomplete without each other. Now, I might ask some of you to help me clean the church. Now, in spite of popular opinion, I know how to clean. Okay? So if I, if I ask you to help me clean, I just mean I want it to go quicker. Right? Right? I don't mean that I don't know how to do it. Now, this week, I asked Victor to help me put that new door up. Did you notice it? Yeah. Right. So now that, that awful toilet that will suck you in, that everyone can hear in the church when you flush it, now we can't hear it. Right? Maybe. We'll see. But I asked Victor. I said, Victor, can you help me build that door? Now, what did I mean by that? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> what I was asking him was, can, can you provide the knowledge that I lack so that we can do this together, right? There were some things I knew how to do. I might have been able to figure it out. I think I'm kind of a smart guy, some say. But so we, 
<laughs> so we put it up together, but he had a knowledge that I lacked. That's the kind of help I needed from him. And he gave it. He provided. Friends, that's the kind of help that God is describing with Eve. There is a knowledge that we lack. There is an ability that we lack as men. There is a function that we lack as men. You see, it's not condescending. It's not giving them a job to do, right? When we have all the tools required anyway, we're just kind of making them feel good. No, it's quite the opposite. It's we can't do this without you. It is incomplete. Does that make sense? That is not degrading. That is wonderfully empowering, isn't it? It's wonderfully liberating for, to have men say, we can't make this without you, and vice versa. There is an egalitarianism in that, an equality in that. So, Adam, so Eve is called Adam's helper. God is called our helper. That is a virtuous and wonderful title for anyone to receive. Okay? <clears throat> a function of the helper in human marriage, in spite of all this virtue, is still respect and submission. Why the woman? Well, marriage is not an entirely equal relationship. There is a difference in function. Equal in person, but different in function, the husband and wife. Every time God is used as a metaphor in the Bible, he's never the, the wife, he's always the husband. But the problem is that we think we submit to people because they're superior, and that's why they're getting that role. Helper is not a degrading term, neither is submission. Church members submit to elders, citizens submit to governing authorities, children submit to parents sometimes, employees submit to bosses sometimes, right? This submission in all these relationships is commanded in Scripture, and God doesn't tell us to take on these roles because we're less human or less capable or less intelligent, but rather because submission of equals is the model of his own being. You see? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ, the head of the church, and husband of the church, is head of the wife. Let me quote to you Raymond Ortland, who made this wonderful observation. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. <clears throat> it does not mean the assertion of the man's will over the woman's will, heedless of her spiritual equality, her rights, and her value. See? That is biblical headship and biblical submission. Helper does not imply inferiority, but rather God's provision to man to accomplish what he could not alone accomplish. Isn't that great? And that's not degrading, it is virtuous and empowering. Number three, this is the other thing that sometimes people trip over, Adam names Eve. Some have suggested that this is sort of condescending type of situation going on. He's implying some sort of superiority over her. But it does not imply inequality or inferiority or even property. You know, we name things that belong to us. <clears throat> Hagar, in Genesis chapter 16, she's a woman. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar names God. So certainly, naming doesn't imply superiority or possession or, in or inequality, right? Naming in Scripture is associated with covenant-making. It's not about inferiority or superiority. It's associated with covenant-making. In other words, two people are coming into a relational um, covenant with each other where they become one. And in that new union, there is a new name put on it. Does that make sense? So, it, so God is not naming, uh, excuse me, Adam is not naming Eve in a condescending way. He's naming her because they're getting married. Okay? He's making a pledge to her, a promise to her. Do you remember Abra, Abram? His name was changed to Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And it's because God had come and God had made a promise to them, a covenant with them, to rescue them, to be their father, to save them. He was making a covenant, a union with man and God, and because of that they received a new name. Do you know that the church is given a new name? 
too in heaven. We're given a new name because we're joined to Christ by his blood. Isn't that incredible? Uh, number four, Satan approaches Eve first and not Adam. This is another um, suggested um, situation where people have thought um, certain erroneous things about why and they have degraded the role of women um, in a way that is heinous and unbiblical. Some have said that Satan approached Eve first because women are more easily tricked. Have you heard this? I've heard teachers say this. I, it's beyond me how there's any women in the church, but they're more easily tricked than man. Are you kidding me? Do you see how many stupid cars men drive because they were tricked by a salesman? Right? How many people remember that episode where George Costanza, Costanza uh, bought, um, what's his name's LeBaron? What was his name? The guy, the, the actor? Oh, I forget his name. John Voigt's, John Voigt's LeBaron. I got it. Oh, yeah, we're not easily tricked. Come on. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, this is the verse that they'll cite. I just read it. Adam was, was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. See? Women are more easily tricked than men. <clears throat> some, some have used this passage to say that. But it's, it's my very simple response to that is that that's not what this verse says. It doesn't say she was deceived and Adam wasn't because women are more easily dis, um, tricked. It's, it just says, by matter of fact, that's what happened. We, all, we can all be tricked. But in this situation, Eve was tricked and Adam wasn't. Edom was, Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. It simply says that in this circumstance, Adam was not deceived and Eve was. So, so why, then, if it's not because women are more easily tricked than men, if it's not because of that, and it's certainly not because of that, why did why did Satan approach Eve first and not Adam? It's a good question. Now, some people have said maybe to undermine his authority as head of the home, which is, I think, a, is a likely and good response. But consider this. Satan perhaps likely engages Eve to relate to her. Now, follow this. As an angel, Satan was called Lucifer. Did you know this? Satan was a good angel. He wasn't always evil. And Isaiah chapter 14 talks about when he fell as lightning from heaven, right? So Satan was a good angel. He was called to guard the glory of God. He was probably the highest angel um, in the, the created angelic order. Incredible. Incredible power. Incredible beauty. If we all saw him right now, we would think he's God and worship him. That's what scripture says in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John actually starts to worship an angel. This was a good angel. And he says, don't do that. I'm toast. Get up. I'm not God. But the, the point is, angels are so powerful and majestic and beautiful that if we all saw, saw one right now, according to Scripture, we would fall on our knees and think it's God himself. That's how wonderful angels are. So here is Satan, Lucifer, who before he fell, was a good angel given beauty and power and intelligence bar none. Satan relates to Eve after, after he falls because he's called to do something similar that Eve is called to do. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says it clear. Are not all angels ministering spirits, spirits sent to serve, now watch this, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now who's that? Angels. Far more powerful, far more intelligent, far more beautiful, sent to serve us. Whew. I don't even put deodorant on often enough. <laughs> They're serving me? Like, I'm wearing the same socks three days in a row. Like, no, that's not true. <laughs> They're sent to, say, to serve me? An angel is sent to serve Kyle. Are you kidding me? So Satan, no doubt, sees his role as servant as degrading when he has to serve us. Right? So it rubs him the wrong way. 
The lesser should serve the greater. That's how we think in our sinfulness, right? The lesser serve the, should serve the greater. But, but, but according to Scripture, the greater, the angels, are serving the lesser, humanity. Rubs them the, rubs them the wrong way. So he goes up to Eve and he says, Eve, you know what? You got a bad deal. He's not your superior. Why is he the head? Right? He's, he potentially is relating to her. In marriage, the lesser does not serve the greater either. Satan was to submit to God himself, but he wanted God to submit to him. And that's very clear in Scripture. I will rise above the Most High, Satan says in Isaiah chapter 14. I will rise above the clouds of heaven, and I will take my seat. Right? So he's, he wants his throne. He wants ultimate, absolute authority. So perhaps... He's tempting Eve with this as well. And aren't we all tempted to that? To want leadership. To want an authoritative role. To want to be the boss. One day, um, my, my, my daughter, she's so cute, Noelle, she comes up to me and she's, she says, Dad, are you the boss of the church? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> she, but, but, and, and I'm like, well, not really, honey. That's not really how I describe it. And she says, well, but you can tell everyone what to do, right? And I'm like, um, well, not if I want a church. <laughs> She's, so I, I, tell, I tell her, I was like, well, you know, there, there's a responsibility. How do I explain this to a five-year-old? But I'm like, there is, there is an authority I have. Yes, there's a responsibility I have to lead the church. But the Bible calls my role the chief servant. So I'm really your servant. Right? And isn't that what leadership is in Scripture? It's not about making my name great or making a legacy and my ministry. And like I, I don't I, I you know, I'm starting to grow more and more impatient with that language. This isn't my ministry. You don't come to Kyle's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. You come to the church of Jesus Christ. You follow his authority. Amen? And you know what? I hope that this church is long gone, long, it's, it's, it exists long after I'm dead and gone and thrives maybe even better ways. This isn't about me. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. You know, like I, I hear so often people talking about, you know, leaving a legacy and, you know, being a, that kind of church that leaves a, you know, and it's, it's I, I guess there maybe sometimes is a virtuous motivation to that, but I, sometimes I think what it can do maybe unintentionally is make the focus on what we've done rather than what Jesus has, is doing in the world. See what I mean? The kingdom will go on. I was, I was in Western Mass um, in a town. I forgot the name of it. I think it was Northfield. And D.L. Moody was an evangelist that was born there. And he was basically the Billy Graham of the 1800s, if, if, that may, if you know who Billy Graham is. Very famous. At the time, he had spoken to more people um, about the gospel than anyone in human history. Um, and he started two enormous schools in Western Mass in Northfield, one for women, one for girls, and one for boys, right? Um, and I went there. I wanted to see this. I heard about it. And I went there, and it was completely empty. Like, I had it closed. You know, 100 years ago, there's, like, thousands of kids going to this, thriving, learning about Jesus. One of them was completely closed. The other one was still a school, but it wasn't Christian anymore. It wasn't training missionaries. And it's funny, because when you, when you go around and you look around the campus, I mean, there are, there are pictures of, like, in, in, a, in one of the rooms, there's a plaque to the first missionaries that were sent out um, from that school to be missionaries. And just all of, all of like, the obvious, like, trophies of, of God's kingdom advancing in the 1800s. And now it's just ghost town. Ghost town. And you know what I thought? Like, at first I was like, oh, what a shame. That's, that was my first kind of feeling. But then I was like, you know what? Who cares? Isn't the church alive? The church is alive. Who cares if it's in Northfield or if it's right here? Because the, the reality is God, Jesus Christ, builds his kingdom. And it continues on even if our building's empty. You know, if our building's empty, another one's probably filled somewhere else. Because Jesus Christ is faithful to build his kingdom. It's not about Moody's school. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen? Number five. <clears throat> 
Eve is called mother of all the living. Mother of all the living. <clears throat> now, this isn't really suggested to be degrading, but I wanted to br bring it up because it is, what, it is how she is described in this passage, and it's got great nobility and virtue, and I wanted to talk about it for a little while. Something fascinating is happening here. Eve is described as the mother of all living things. You just got to kind of let that soak in. <laughs> all living things. Uh, and when I, things being humanity. She's the mother of all humanity. Now just the, the amazing kind of virtue of that, that that was the responsibility she was given, the title she was given, is fantastic as that is. There's something even deeper and even more incredible than that. We read, I will put enmity, this is Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now this is incredibly important. The Bible, many theologians call this the proto-evangelium. Proto-first evangelium gospel. First gospel. It's the first time the gospel is mentioned in human history. And what's being said is that there is going to be a seed from the woman who will rescue fallen humanity from death, from the curse. What's happening in the context of this is that Adam and Eve had both sinned and been separated from God, and God approached them and started announcing curses as a consequence of that sin. Here are the results of that sin. But in the middle of that curse is a promise. In spite of this curse, God says, I'm sending a rescuer. I'm sending the seed of the woman will rescue you from your sin and the consequences of sin. But what's really incredible here, I think, is that only Eve is talked about in the promise of the Redeemer. Adam is nowhere mentioned. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Where's Adam in the picture? Between your offspring and hers. So, Jesus, uh, so, so Eve is not just the mother of all living people. She is the mother of Christ himself. She is the origin of the Savior. And in woman, we have a picture of Christ our Lord. You see, they are not the Savior, but we have a picture of the Savior, Christ our Lord, who served us and died for us and rescued us, our hero, our master, our Lord. The mother of the rescuer, the source of the redeemer. Adam's not even mentioned. Adam's mentioned later in Romans, but as the one who made us all sinners. Thanks. Isn't it interesting that the very first promise of the coming Savior Jesus Christ is that the woman is given the task of his delivery. Wow. And why? Why is Eve given this responsibility? Well, perhaps for the same reason Satan urged her to turn from God. Perhaps it was to show us that through humility comes glory. Amen? Amen. By the servant comes salvation. So let's close. Woman was created in God's image along with Adam. Not just Adam. God created them in his image, male and female. He created them. She was taken from his side, not from his foot, to be trampled on, or from his head to rule over him. From his side as equal, to be loved and cherished. She is his helper, not to fetch his slippers as if she, as if she were there just for him to assert his will over hers but to help him obey God's commands that without her he would not be able to. She submits to her husband not because he's smarter, but because she stands as a type of the church, being loved and cared for by Christ himself. Finally, she has individual, intrinsic worth. After the fall, God addresses her individually. The woman and God have an individual relationship. Woman and God have a distinct call 
from God himself. By the way, there's a, a puzzle passage in the New Testament that says women will be saved by childbirth. Have you heard this before? It's in that same passage that we read um, from Timothy. Women will be sh- saved by childbearing. What does that mean? Well, a lot of people have really gone dizzy trying to figure that one out. But what I think it means is that, that the birth of Christ, our Savior, that's how we're saved, right? So without the birth of Christ, none of us are saved. I think that's the context of that, that text and what that means. There's nothing that you don't have to have a kid to go to heaven. Of course it doesn't mean that. That's ridiculous. So she submits to her husband not because he's smarter, but because she stands as a type of the church being loved. She has individual intrinsic worth because she's addressed individually after the fall. Women and God have an individual relationship. God gives woman a specific individual unique responsibility to deliver the Savior. Like Christ, husbands have this responsibility. Husbands, you have this responsibility, and I quote again, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears primary responsibility to to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Husbands, love your wives. And Christ, our husband, our bridegroom, leads us, the church, in a God-glorifying direction. Sent his son to redeem us, to save us, to die for us, so that we might be his bride. And friends, if you don't know Christ this morning, I would ask you, men and women alike, child and adult, to receive the call of salvation, to accept Christ, to recognize that he is holy and good and that our sin has forever separated from us from him in death. But the, the death of Christ is the death that we should die, that we accept it and we trust it. He dies it for us. And we are reunited to our good king, our good God, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.